When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. Welcome to Pax Britannica. Season 2, Episode 28, The Irish Confederacy. Welcome back to Pax Britannica. I'm your host, Samuel Hume. Last week, we covered the aftermath of the Battle of Edge Hill. The inconclusive battle meant that both the King and Parliament's armies were undefeated, and both remained in the field. What followed was a race to London. Charles I wanted to capture it. The Earl of Essex, commander of Parliament's armies, wanted to protect it. When Essex reached it first, the King faced the prospect of fighting not just the large parliamentary army, but the motivated militia, that was the London-trained bands. Outnumbered and low on supplies, Charles wisely decided not to try and take the capital, and withdrew to Oxford, where he would re-establish his court and prepare for a long stay. Over the last few episodes, we've been focused solely on events in England. The outbreak of the First English Civil War was, like the Bishop's Wars before it, something of a slow burn. Negotiations and pamphlets and the battle for public opinion all preceded the declarations of war. The breakdown in relations between the Scottish Covenanters and the King, and then the English Parliament and the King, had their roots in the previous years and decades. The crises themselves, which led to war, were gradual progressions of failed political and diplomatic solutions, until a military confrontation became the best choice for many. This was not the case in Ireland. When the Irish Rebellion broke out in October 1641, it was seen as a bolt from the blue, a conspiracy only partly discovered at the very last minute, a discovery which saved the government in Dublin Castle from capture, but which did nothing to stop the sudden seizure of key forts across the province of Ulster by the so-called deserving Irish, Gaelic nobles and gentry who had taken part in the plantation of Ireland with gusto, but who had found themselves increasingly cut out of the profit and their access to politics restricted. Their grievances were decades in the making, and inspired by the success of the Covenanters in forcing the king to the table and securing the reforms they desired, 
Irish leaders like Sir Phelim O'Neill and Connor, Lord Maguire, struck in October 1641. They aimed for a political settlement, and hoped that they would seize the government, led by the Lords Justice Parsons and Borlase, and those key forts in Ulster, presenting a fait accompli to the King, the English Parliament, and the Scots. Instead, with their coup foiled, but their military sieges successful, they sparked a popular revolt among the Irish peasantry. Whatever the political elite desired, be it better access to the king or greater involvement in plantation, the ordinary Irish had very different problems with the status quo. Things like getting turfed off their land, or getting paid far less than the English and Scottish colonists, or having their religion persecuted. These grievances had led to decades of rebellions across the island of Ireland. During the reigns of James and Charles, each year was more likely to see a rebellion somewhere in the kingdom than not. In that sense, the surprising thing about the 1641 rebellion wasn't that there was a rebellion, but that it was as large as it was. So when Sir Phelim and Lord Maguire opened Pandora's box with their attempted coup d'etat, popular violence took Ulster, and then the rest of Ireland, by storm. The gentry tried to maintain control over the popular rebellion, but they could only do so much. As massacre followed massacre, and the Protestant cities received endless streams of refugees, each bringing their own passionate tales of atrocity, the rebel leadership quickly distanced themselves from the violence. Partly this was true, but the landless sort were a convenient scapegoat for the excesses of their rebellion. The leaders wanted a political settlement. Taking responsibility for the massacre of Protestant settlers would make that very difficult. When we last left Ireland in early 1642, the death toll among Protestants was, in Mihal O'Shukru's estimation, around 5,000, from direct violence, disease, starvation, and from exposure. Government forces had enacted their own retribution, leaving about the same number of Irish Catholics dead across the kingdom from the same causes. Catholic priests were regularly targeted, either killed in a general slaughter of civilians, or hanged afterwards. Women were also far from protected, despite early modern custom. Viewed not as innocents, but instigators, who emboldened their husbands and sons into rebellion. Robert Monroe was leading a force of Covenanter troops in the north from April, as we've mentioned previously, and one Colonel Monk had arrived with English reinforcements in February, breaking off the siege of Drogheda. With the failed capture of Drogheda by Sir Phelim, and the wider assault by government forces supported by the other two kingdoms, the rebellion looked doomed to collapse. Prospects improved for the rebels after the death of two of the most zealous government commanders, Sir William Selinger and Sir Charles Coote. Selinger had been Lord President of Munster, and oversaw a bloody campaign across the south, and Coote had ordered multiple mass executions of Catholic civilians across Leinster. Selinger died in July 1642 of illness, while Coote was shot and killed in May, either by the enemy or by his own men. They were, for Oshukru, two of the most energetic colonial commanders, and their deaths harmed the government position. Adding to the government's troubles were the events in England. Reinforcements had arrived shortly after the outbreak of the rebellion, but since then, 
England had been drifting towards civil war, and few men and supplies could be spared. Those reinforcements had been devastated by the Irish flux, dysentery. All of this combined meant that the government offensive was reined in by summer 1642, and their forces focused on protecting what territory they still controlled, notably the regions around Dublin, Derry, Cork and Carrickfergus. This was the breathing room which the rebels sorely needed. The failure of the coup and the failure to capture Drahada had made it clear to the leaders of the rebellion that they were going to be in this for the long haul. Both Gaelic and old English elites, who had been taken by surprise by the popular rebellion, realised that it had to be brought under control, and the rebels needed to organise both politically and militarily. It's important to note that the Old English and the Gaelic Irish, though far from natural allies and with literal centuries of bad blood, had found themselves in the same boat. Broadly speaking, the vast majority of both Gaelic Irish and Old English nobles and gentry remained Catholic, and the New English in Dublin Castle suspected both. In the early weeks of the rebellion, the Old English of the Pale, traditionally closely tied and loyal to the government, were wavering in that allegiance. The government distrusted them, and had made that distrust blatantly clear over the previous few years. The cherry on top was the government's refusal to allow the Old English to arm themselves, not just for self-defence, but to aid government forces against the rebels. Old English offers to help negotiate a peace with the rebels through Parliament were rebuffed by the government, who then prorogued that Parliament on the 17th of November. That was itself the cherry on top of the farce of the Graces, the reforms which had come so close to providing something resembling equality before the law for Catholic Irish. The outrages of government forces against Catholics only fed Old English fears that the New English were using the rebellion as an excuse to deal with them once and for all. Elsewhere in the kingdom, Catholic notables began to arm themselves and their dependents to defend against both the lawlessness of the rebels and the feared government slaughter. As John Cunningham, in his chapter of the Cambridge History of Ireland, puts it, Cut off from the king and unwanted in Dublin, many influential Catholics now began to consider an accommodation with the advancing northern rebels. This accommodation would come on the 7th of December, and at a meeting between the Pale Lords and the rebels, a loose alliance had been struck, and throughout the early months of 1642, this developed into a new provisional government. The idea that something needed to be done to govern the rebel-held territory was an obvious one to many contemporaries, even those who hadn't yet publicly thrown in their lot with the rebels. The Earl of Clanricard, Ulick Burke, was one such fence-sitter. Clanricard wanted peace, and repeatedly attempted to broker one between the rebels, the Dublin government, and the king. Clanricard was sympathetic to the cause of the rebels. He was an old English Catholic, and he was constantly worked on by the Lords of the Pale, who were themselves Old English Catholics. They called on him to join them, appealing to his Catholicism and his Irishness, but Clan Rickard remained aloof, at least publicly. Behind closed doors, Clan Rickard was one of those suggesting a, quote, model for a form of government, end quote, 
which would have a supreme council, with regional councils below it. This would allow the rebellion to raise funds through taxation, maintain recruitment, and better position the rebels to fight an actual war. We'll see more of Clan Rickard in the future. The rebellion gained an enormous source of legitimacy in March 1642. A synod of senior Catholic churchmen gathered at Kells in County Meath, headed by the Archbishop of Armagh and attended by most of the local bishops. They announced that not only was the rebellion a just and lawful war, but any Catholic who refused to support it would be excommunicated. Again, the call was made for a central authority to govern the rebel-held territory and to manage the war effort. Further gatherings of churchmen took place in Kilkenny in May and June. Present at the May Synod were three of Ireland's four archbishops, those of Armagh, Cashel and Tume. The Archbishop of Dublin, the fourth archbishop, was unable to attend this meeting personally, and instead sent a procurator to represent him at this monumental event. Alongside the archbishops were many lesser bishops, and here, alongside lay notables, they drafted and endorsed an oath of association. The oath opens by providing an explanation for the rebellion. They had been forced to take up arms against the Puritan faction, who threatened their lives, liberties, and property, as well as to safeguard the king's regal powers and prerogatives. The oath itself, which I'll read in full, is as follows. I do profess, swear, and protest before God and his saints and angels that I will, during my life, bear true faith and allegiance to my sovereign lord, Charles, by the grace of God, King of Great Britain, France, and Ireland, and to his heirs and lawful successors, and that I will, to my power, during my life, defend, uphold, and maintain all his and their just prerogatives, estates, and rights, the power and privilege of the Parliament of this realm, the fundamental laws of Ireland, the free exercise of the Roman Catholic faith and religion throughout this land, and the lives, just liberties, possessions, estates, and rights of all those that have taken or that shall take this oath, and perform the contents thereof, and that I will obey and ratify all the orders and decrees made and to be made by the Supreme Council of the Confederate Catholics of this kingdom, concerning the said public cause, and I will not seek, directly or indirectly, any pardon or protection for any act done, or to be done, touching this general clause, without the consent of the major part of the said council, and that I will not, directly or indirectly, do any act or acts that shall prejudice the said cause, but will, to the hazard of my life and estate, assist, prosecute, and maintain the same. Moreover, I do further swear that I will not accept of or submit unto any peace made or to be made with the said Confederate Catholics without the consent and approbation of the General Assembly of the said Confederate Catholics, and for the preservation and strengthening of the association and union of the kingdom, that upon any peace or accommodation to be made or concluded with the said Confederate Catholics as aforesaid, I will, to the utmost of my power, insist upon and maintain the ensuing propositions until a peace, as aforesaid, be made, and the matters to be agreed upon in the Articles of Peace be established and secured by Parliament. So help me God and his holy gospel. End quote. There's a lot to unpack here, aforesaid. In many ways, 
it shares similarities with the other oaths, declarations, and, dare I say it, covenants made over the previous few years. It insisted on preserving the king and his rights. It depicted the swearers of the oath as the victims of aggression and their resistance as just. It emphasises the authority of Parliament and recalls the fundamental laws of the kingdom. And perhaps most interesting, it pushes for a united front of Irishmen, echoing similar calls in the Scottish National Covenant. This is part of the reason the Confederacy is sometimes, though definitely not always, seen as a proto-nationalist government, or at least as a stop on the road towards Irish nationalism. Though I should emphasise that this is far from the consensus among historians. Other comparisons can be made in how the oath was administered to the population. Much like in Scotland, the church took the lead, with priests leading their congregations in swearing allegiance to the king, to the Kingdom of Ireland, and to the Catholic Church. That was, in essence, the motto of the Confederacy. Irishmen united for God, King, and country. Though obviously, it was in Latin. Was the Sphinx 10,000 years old? Were there serial killers in ancient Greece and Rome? What were the lives of transgender, intersex, and non-binary people like in the ancient world? We're Jen. And Jenny. From Ancient History Fangirl. We tell you true stories and tall tales of the ancient world. Sometimes we do it tipsy. Sometimes we have amazing guests on our show. Historians like Barry Strauss, podcasters like Liv Albert, Mike Duncan, and authors like Joanne Harris and Ben Aronovich. We take you to the top of Hadrian's Wall to watch the Roman Empire fall at the end of the world. We walk the catacombs beneath the Temple of the Feathered Serpent under Teotihuacan. We walk the sacred spirals of the Nazca Lines in search of ancient secrets. And we explore mythology from ancient cultures around the world. Come find us at ancienthistoryfangirl.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Let Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot, and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe, and others. I'm Christopher, and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story, so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. I also host the number one sleep podcast in the world called Sleep Cove, where millions drift off to meditations, hypnosis, and bedtime stories. We soon realised that listeners wanted to hear our mystery stories all in one place, so we created Mysteries at Midnight, where you can listen to all new tales every week. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favourite podcast app, and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes. So why don't you pick a story now? And can you guess the twist? So, what was the reaction to this new rebel alliance? In many ways, it was much the same. From the earliest declarations from the rebels, they'd claimed loyalty to the king. These claims of allegiance had been soundly rebuffed by Charles, who, among other things, was desperate not to be seen by his British subjects as being behind a Catholic rebellion. In February, the king called on the rebels to surrender, though he changed his tune in time. 
This had been a major blow to the morale of the rebels, who had insisted on their loyalty to the king in nearly every public and private declaration of their motives. After this demand to surrender, some notable palesmen showed the depths of their loyalty by following this command and handing themselves over to the Lord's Justices. When they were roughly treated with imprisonment, and in some cases torture, that forestalled any more mass surrenders. Amnesty was clearly not on offer. In March, the English Parliament passed the Adventurers Act, which declared the future confiscation of two and a half million acres of Irish Catholic land once the rebellion was crushed, with investors paying in advance for this land the money to be spent on crushing the rebellion. The Adventurers Act went further and prohibited Charles from granting any pardons to the rebels without their consent. The Adventurers Act was an incredibly bold declaration from Westminster that was not well received in Ireland. Obviously, the Irish Catholics were appalled and even more desperate to win, but it was an overt intrusion into Irish affairs and into the jurisdiction of the Irish Parliament. If you recall, we've seen how opposition to the English Parliament's purported superiority to the Irish Parliament had united several strange bedfellows prior to the rebellion. The long-term impact of the Adventurers Act was perhaps even greater, presenting an obstacle to peace negotiations throughout the war, with the land confiscations eventually being enforced with the Cromwellian invasion. But that's for the future. As 1642 progressed, and the relationship between the king and his English parliament deteriorated into outright war, the Confederates, which is how I'll start referring to what were the Irish rebels, benefited from the chaos in England. Naturally, with civil war on the horizon, few in England were keen to ship off troops and resources to what they saw as a peripheral conflict. For the Confederates, they began to increasingly benefit from the return of their own continental veterans, but we'll get to them next time. The Confederates solidified their government in October 1642, when the first General Assembly met in Kilkenny, their de facto capital. This General Assembly was very similar to a Parliament, in that it drew representatives from all four provinces, and was made up of 14 secular lords, 11 bishops and clergy, and 226 representatives of the commons. From this General Assembly was elected a Supreme Council, which would act as the executive of the government and handle the day-to-day -day functions of governing and of fighting the war. Below the Supreme Council and the General Assembly were established county councils, and from these county councils would come two representatives who made up a provincial council. Clearly, this was not a slapdash affair which would fall apart at the first strong wind. Oshukru describes it as the only example of sustained self-government by the Irish on a national level before 1919. And despite its issues, which we will cover in the future, the Confederate government lasted for almost a decade. It strikes me, as I'm writing this, that the Confederacy gets a similar short thrift to the Covenanter government, and for similar reasons. Both were born out of civil strife and rebellion. Both attempted to govern their kingdoms on a national level, and both were crushed by Cromwell. This final defeat and subsumation within the Commonwealth has often been used to discredit any successes of their respective rules. After all, 
they lost. But, as we've seen with the Scottish Revolution interview series, the legacy of that revolution did not die at Dunbar or Worcester, and many of its ideas, innovations and successes lived on. Perhaps we will see a similar case with the Confederacy. Or perhaps not. Ireland's experience of Cromwell's victory would be very different to Scotland's. From the outset, the Confederacy attempted to preserve harmony within their ranks, and this was not a simple task. Remember that the native Gaelic Irish and the Old English, despite centuries of intermarriage, and despite now sharing a religion under threat, had a strained working relationship, grounded in just as many centuries of warring, feuding, and the exchange of angry letters. But this was a national cause, or at least the Confederacy tried to make it so. At a meeting between the rebels and the old English lords of the Pale in December 1641, cheers and applause followed the statement that they were all part of, quote, the same religion and the same nation, end quote. Almost a year later, at the first gathering of the General Assembly, it declared that no prejudice or discrimination be shown between, quote, old Irish and old and new English, or between sects or families, or between citizens and townsmen and countrymen joining in union upon pain of the highest punishment, end quote. The founding Confederates were all Catholic, united for mutual defence, but their stated aims included the desire for the king to treat all his Irish subjects equally, whatever their faith and whatever their ethnicity. And while this was an explicitly Catholic confederacy, Protestants were not excluded. The Confederates were aware that any negotiated settlement would have to include Anglicans and Presbyterians, and more than one Protestant fought for the Confederates. This inclusive language wasn't short-lived. We can see this in a delegation to the Royalists in 1644, quote, For he that is born in Ireland, though his parents and all his ancestors were aliens, nay, if his parents are Indians or Turks, if converted to Christianity, is an Irishman fully, as if his ancestors were born here for thousands of years, end quote. Of course, this rhetoric came from a faction desperate for support from a multi-ethnic, multi-faith kingdom, and it's an open question how well implemented these attitudes actually were on the ground. But this is still remarkably inclusive, especially considering the attitudes prevalent in London and Edinburgh. Next time, we will cover the military aspect of the Confederacy, as the rebellion turned war called back those Irish mercenaries who had cut their teeth in the Thirty Years' War. Chief among them was a colonel recently in Spanish service, known to the Spaniards as Don Eugenio O'Neill, who had last seen his native island in 1607. To his countrymen, he was Owen Roe O'Neill, cousin to Sir Phelim O'Neill and nephew to the great Earl himself, Hugh O'Neill. Thanks to my House of Lords, where David Metcalfe has been promoted from Viscount Darlington to the Earl of Darlington. If you'd like to join the ranks of the House of Lords and receive an ad-free version of this and every other episode, go to patreon.com slash Pax Britannica. Thank you to everyone who has recommended the podcast to a friend, since this is the best way, the single best way to help a podcast grow. Thank you as well to everyone who's left a review. These help convince people who have found the podcast to give it a try. Thank you to Sounds Like an Earful for the interval music used in today's episode. 
to my entire House of Lords for their support, and as always, to you for listening.